I want to say thank you again for your hospitality and welcome of me while I've been here visiting and sharing the word with you. You have a wonderful pastor and a wonderful pastor's wife and wonderful associate pastors. It's been a gift and so thank you. Around the tables, in the foyer, after services and before, thank you for welcoming me and thank you for listening not to me, but to what it may be that the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us. I often tell people the best sermon is one that convicts me as the preacher. And if it means nothing to anyone else, as long as the Lord is doing something in my heart, it's a sermon that was needed. And so these messages that I have brought have been things that the Lord has been working in my life on. And I'm thankful to hear of the ways that God is connecting with you. We have been journeying with Jesus in the wilderness, at a wedding, on the mountain, at a picnic, and then today we will be with Jesus at a fire. When we meet the disciples tonight, they're tired, and it's been a long night of fishing. They've been awake all day as far as we know, and then fishing all night long, and the exhaustion had to be real. I was telling Pastor Dan that my Apple Watch tells me some things about how I slept and didn't sleep, and last night there is a lot of orange on my sleep report, which means I was awake. We can sense, can't we, some of the exhaustion that it must be like when we feel tired, but all day and then all night, and not the kind of fishing where you're sitting comfortably on a boat, you know, casting and reeling in, but net fishing, very physical. They had to be so tired. But they also were sad and confused and worried, probably wondering what their lives were all about because this fishing trip came after Jesus had been crucified, dead, buried, and risen. He'd come to them, he'd spoken to Mary, he'd breathed his peace, he'd let Thomas touch his wounds, but it all seemed strange and uncertain. What they knew how to do was fishing, and Peter told his friends, I'm going fishing, and some of them went with him. John chapter 21, where we're gonna spend some time this evening, comes at the end of the season of Lent. So spoiler alert, we're gonna talk about the resurrected Christ tonight. It's after the Last Supper. It's after the betrayal in the garden. It's after the arrest and beating and shaming of Jesus. It comes after the disciples who had had their feet washed, betrayed him one by one, and he was brutally crucified by the government with religious people and the general public happy to have this rabble rouser put to death. John 21 comes after the women go to the tomb after they meet Jesus, after Jesus appears to his disciples. John 21 comes after all of these troubling and difficult and then amazing and wonderful things. And even after they've seen all of this, it's still a little bit too strange and a little bit scary and uncertain. So John 21 has the disciples going fishing and they go out and the text tells us they fish all night and they are professionals, but even professionals don't always catch something. Early in the morning, the text says, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them and he asked them if they had caught anything and the short reply to this person who they didn't recognize was no. 
Jesus called out to them while they were still on the water to throw their nets on the other side of the boat and see if they would catch anything. I will never understand what compelled them after a long night of unsuccessful fishing to try this, but they did. I wonder if it was because Jesus had told them at a different time to throw their nets into deep water. And that's a passage that's recorded for us in Luke. And so it was a bit of a memory and a thought. Even though they couldn't recognize him, this felt kind of familiar. Maybe they were going to see Jesus again. Maybe it was just boredom. Maybe it was desperation. Maybe they were just being polite. But for whatever reason, they did it. They cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And maybe you know this story and you know what happened. So many fish filled their net. And when their nets were full, they realized it was Jesus. John said to Peter, it is the Lord. And Peter, filled with all of the gusto and all of the bluster, put on some clothes because apparently he was fishing naked and then he leapt into the water. Had to get to shore before the boat. 153 fish, a giant catch. And such a big catch would have tested the strength of any net, would have broken nets in normal circumstances, but this time, with this catch, with Jesus on the shore, the net held. Now this passage can give us a variety of things to reflect on as we consider the reality of our own circumstances. We're living in what is known as a post-Christian culture. Our churches in North America are in decline and resourcing is seeming scarcer and scarcer for many of us. And times can feel difficult. Around the table tonight, we were talking about how things used to be, how youth group used to be, or young adult class used to be, or we remember when. We are living in a difficult and different time. We've already talked together about people in our neighborhoods who don't show up to church like they used to. They don't trust Christians. They wonder if we're anything but hypocrites. The kind of fishing that we have been doing in the church isn't working in the ways that it used to work. Our nets are turning up empty when they used to turn up full. But this passage can be encouraging to us. For we are people of hope, after all. Jesus is standing on the shore of our lives, calling out for us individually and as a church and as a district and as a denomination to throw our nets onto the other side of the boat, to try something different, to follow his lead and his voice. It's the same nets, it's the same boat, it's the same people, but Jesus is saying, try something different. Jesus is inviting us to be innovative, maybe to change our methods, even though the message never changes, but to try things in a different way than we're used to. We can't go back, we know that. But as we move forward, what is it that Jesus is calling us to do? As we stand where we are on the boat, will we listen to the voice of Jesus and will we have the courage to throw our nets on the other side? But there's more for us in John chapter 21. Look with me at verses 15 through 19. When they'd finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I assure you that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you where you do not want to go. He said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. The resurrected Jesus the one with a different kind of power than the power that we're used to in this world. The one who is resurrected, who has just called for the people, the disciples to throw their nets on the other side of the boat. This Jesus has a conversation with Peter on the shore of the sea. And in resurrection power, he has a restoration conversation. For what is happening in this conversation is just that. Jesus and the impulsive disciple Peter are having a conversation about being restored. For on the night of Jesus' crucifixion, we know that Peter, who had declared that he would die with Jesus, actually denied him. Not once, not twice, but three times. Three opportunities to stand with Jesus and Peter lost his nerve. Three times he could have practiced what he had declared and, and he pretended not to know who Jesus was. Three times he could have had holy courage, but he cowered in fear. And three times Jesus is going to use resurrection power not to shame or blame Peter, but to restore him Three times, Jesus is going to respond with the repeated calling over Peter's life. Three times, Jesus is going to invite Peter to declare his love. It isn't all over because Peter denied Jesus. It's not. No. Because Jesus meets us in those places where we have failed and he invites us back into fellowship, back into the fold and back into the mission of God. There is always room in the kingdom of God for our restoration. Now some preachers have made a big deal out of the way that Jesus talked to Peter that day. I've heard sermons about this and I just thought it was what it was. Because in the Greek, we've talked a little bit about the different words in our texts. The way that Jesus uses the word love is different. The way that Peter uses the word love is different. Jesus asks his disciple who betrayed him, do you agape me? Now agape love, you may know, is the everlasting love of God. It's unearned. It comes without conditions. It is full and complete. It is what we receive from our good God. God loves us with agape love. And Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And you might also know that there are different words for love. And Peter responds with a yes. He doesn't say, I agape you, though. He says, I phileo you. And this is how you would talk to a dear friend or a favorite possession. So I wonder, should we be concerned? Does Peter not love Jesus enough? Maybe this is why Jesus asks him again and again. Surely by the end, when we get to the end of the conversation, Peter says, yes, I agape you, Lord. It's all taken care of. 
He's finally arrived. But that's not what's happening at all. Jesus starts with what we would call the highest love. And by the third time, he is also using the same word that Peter is using. And we know that Jesus doesn't call us to this high place and then lower the standards. But I think what we're seeing in this passage isn't, does Peter measure up in his love, but do you love me completely in every way you could ever love anyone or anything? In the way that God loves you, can you love me back by grace? It is about the love of God at work in Peter. For God is love, and God's grace enables us to love. Nothing higher, remember we talked about that. Nothing else on the throne of our heart. Full allegiance to God, that is what's happening in the text. That is what we are trying to see. Peter, do you love me, Jesus asks. He gets a do-over for how he betrayed his savior. What a beautiful savior we have. In the kingdom of God, God is always making room for our restoration, always asking us the question, do you love me? Do you love me with any kind of love and all kinds of love and complete love? Tonight, I don't know what it is that you might need the restoration of God for. I don't know what burden might be hanging over you, what past sin is still plaguing you, what experience you have gone through that makes you feel unworthy to receive the grace and goodness of God, but I hope you'll hear me tonight. There is room for you, no matter what, in the kingdom of God. There isn't a person on the face of the earth that Jesus won't restore if we will just willingly receive his grace. It's there for us. So may you receive it tonight, his full love for you, so that you can be filled with full love for him. Hear Jesus say, do you love me? It's a question for Peter and it's a question for us. Do we love Jesus more than anything else? Do we love Jesus over all the other loves in our lives? Do we love Jesus? I believe Jesus will keep asking us that question and giving us space to answer it because he never forces himself on us but gives us space until we recognize that we've actually been restored. He's made room for Peter just as Peter needed to be restored. No more guilt, no more shame, rather a welcome back into the fold and Jesus will do the same for us. Restoration just as you need it, just as I need it if we will receive it. After all, you remember what Jesus said about this, don't you? God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is what God has done for us. There's always room for restoration in the kingdom of God but we have to pay attention to the rest of the conversation as well. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And when Peter answers Jesus, Jesus tells Peter to do something. And we've talked about how when we ask the question, what do we want to become or who do we want to be? There are things that we have to do because becoming requires action. 
This love that Peter has for Jesus, the love that we can have for Jesus, will always compel us to do something in response. When we're following after our Lord, who has made room for us to be his disciples fully restored, he invites us to act. We don't do whatever we want to do once we're restored. We don't strike out on our own as Lord of our own lives. The new life we have received provides each of us with a holy invitation to get to work with Jesus. Feed my sheep, Jesus tells Peter. And that's the word for us, too. When you and I can finally receive the grace that is freely given, the love that has been poured out for us, the restoration that only Jesus brings, when we realize that the God of the universe has made room for us, then we will find that we in turn have a responsibility. Feed my sheep. How do we prove that we love Jesus? We feed his sheep. Now in the church, we sometimes start to think that there are some people with this responsibility and some of us just have a nice relationship with Jesus that helps us personally when we're struggling and gets us into heaven when we die. That responsibility, that sheep feeding thing, it's for the pastors or the leaders or maybe the board, they can be a part of that too, but it's not for everyone. We might think, I'm just a sheep. I'm one of the ones that you're called to feed. But we have to come to a place where we recognize that each one of us has a calling. All of us together matter for the kingdom of God. We need everyone who loves Jesus to be a sheep feeder. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ after all. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by the one spirit so as to form the one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. We are all given the one spirit to drink. And even so, the body's not made up of one part, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Each person in this sanctuary, from the youngest who are here tonight to the oldest, is an important part of the body of Christ. Each person who claims to love Jesus is also called to feed Jesus' sheep. Because we have different gifts. We have different talents. We have different experience and different ways. But we are all meant to participate in the feeding of sheep. Some of us are called to ordained ministry. This is one way to be a sheep feeder. But it doesn't mean that those are the only ones among you. Those of you who are not ordained to the ministry are still ministers of the kingdom of God. Your pastors need you. We can't feed sheep alone. We must work together for the sake of the kingdom of God, listening to one another, learning from one another, helping one another, praying for one another, working with one another as we all continue to love Jesus together. 
Do you love Jesus? Feed his sheep. Jesus makes room for our restoration and he makes room for us to join him in his mission in the world. And this happens in so many ways throughout the Gospels, and we can testify to the ways it's happened in our own lives. But in our passage of Scripture, the way Jesus makes room for us to experience restoration and to join him in mission is connected, for me, not just to this interaction between Peter and Jesus, but to a, fall, a small phrase in the passage. John chapter 21, verse 9. When they landed... They saw a fire there with fish on it and some bread. What a strange verse. And you might be thinking, I'm not sure what this has to do with Jesus making room for our restoration and us feeding sheep. But there's something about that fire that I think is really important for us. It's a perfect image for us while we are still in the cold temperatures of winter because we know the warmth of a fire, not just physically, but how meaningful it can be to sit before a fire, to reflect, to laugh, to sit together with others. Even, even just lighting a candle, we know how that flickering flame, like the ones behind me, are symbolic. They mean something. They, they change the way that we feel about things. We can think back to campfires that we've sat at with dear ones joining us around the circle, trying to dodge the smoke and telling stories. Someone with a stick, right? There's always someone with a stick stirring the embers of that fire. It's a place of peace. It's a place of belonging. Oh, we've been in the boat with the fishing disciples. We've been on the shore with Jesus and Peter and now I want us to look at Jesus' fire. In the midst of our confusion and our fear and our uncertainty, when it feels like the things we know how to do just aren't working out anymore, when we feel like we've been trying to love Jesus and feed sheep and be faithful and it's just like there's not a lot to show for it, there is Jesus. And what's he doing? He's tending a fire. Before the miraculous catch of fish, Jesus built a fire. Before the nets were almost busting with squirming and slimy fish, Jesus was already making breakfast. One of my favorite professors and theologians writes of this passage in John as one of the bent down stories of Jesus. There are a variety of stories where Jesus bends down and you might know them. He bends down and he writes in the dirt next to the woman who was caught in adultery. He bends down and he spits in the dirt and he puts the mud in the eyes of the blind man. Jesus, in Philippians 2, in that great hymn of Jesus' self-emptying, he bends down to us by taking the very nature of a human being, becoming a slave, surrendering his power, being obedient to death, and rising with resurrection power. Jesus bends down. And there he is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, tending the fire. The one who was with God in the beginning, the one who rose from the dead, stirring a fire that he had started. I wonder what method Jesus used to get the fire going. Did he use his scarred hands 
His nail-scarred hands to rub sticks together? Did he have a flint that his scarred hands struck to make a spark? Can you picture the one who was the word through whom the universe was created, the one who breathed peace on the disciples when they were afraid in the upper room, breathing on that tinder or the charcoal? He would have quickly needed to get wood, keep blowing to get it going, and then tended it, crouching down by the fire, a stick in his scarred hands, poking and stirring while fish were roasting. Jesus, the light of the world, built a fire. Maybe you feel like you're in the boat and you've been fishing all night long and there's nothing to show for it. This could be all sorts of things that it would represent in your own life. Maybe you have been trying as hard as you can to win your family for Christ and you keep trying and your nets keep coming up empty. Maybe it has to do with the ministries of your church and you just are dreaming that there will be more young people, more people that are coming in off the streets to know Jesus whose lives need to be transformed and you've been trying all the ways you can, all the holy conversations, all of the different ways to engage and it just doesn't seem to work. Maybe you're trying to make ends meet and the bills keep coming in and you wonder how you're going to ever be able to retire and it's just empty nets worn out from trying sickness. I don't know, but you feel like you're in the boat and you're tired. Did you know that Jesus has built a fire and is making you breakfast? Maybe you're in a season of great joy. Maybe for you there's excitement and fulfillment. Maybe you've seen the miracles of God at work in your life and in the lives of your loved ones. Maybe things are flourishing for you. You are experiencing the presence of God like you've never experienced before. Your family's following Jesus. Your finances are all lining up. Doors are opening and it's like your nets are full but Jesus built that same fire and is making breakfast just for you too. Maybe you're like Peter. You've been fishing and it was a long night and then this amazing thing happens and you catch all these fish, but when you get to shore and you get close to Jesus again, you remember how you really messed up. How could there be restoration for me, you might ask. After what I did, did you know that Jesus has built a fire? And he's making you breakfast too. And he wants to invite us to make way for a new way of living in the world. Are you empty tonight? He has fish on the fire already and bread. Are you full tonight? Bring what you have and join it with what Jesus has so that others can continue to have more. Are you feeling like you don't belong tonight? Come close to the fire. He will restore you, not part of the way, but all of the way, for he loves you and he loves the world. Are you wondering what your purpose is? Jesus is calling you, feed my sheep. Are you looking for sustenance for your life? Come close. There's breakfast here for you. There's room here for you. Do you see Jesus crouched at the campfire, tending it, with a stick. Come and dine with me, he says to us. The words of 
an old camp meeting song fit as we're ending our time together, both for this evening and just this time of spiritual deepening, and I'd like to read them to you. Come and dine. Jesus has a table spread where the saints of God are fed. He invites his chosen people, come and dine. With his manna he doth feed and supplies our every need. Oh, tis sweet to sup with Jesus all the time. Oh, come and dine, the master calleth. Come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table all the time. He who fed the multitude turned the water into wine. To the hungry calleth now, come and dine. The disciples came to land, thus obeying Christ's command. For the master called to them, O come and dine. There they found their heart's desire, bread and fish upon the fire. Thus he satisfies the hungry every time. Come and dine, the master calleth. Come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table all the time. He who fed the multitude turned the water into wine. To the hungry calleth now come and dine. Soon the lamb will take his bride to ever be at his side. All the host of heaven will assembled be. Oh, twill be a glorious sight. All the saints in spotless white and they with Jesus will feast eternally. Come and dine. The master calleth, come and dine. You may feast at Jesus' table all the time. He who fed the multitude turned the water into wine. To the hungry calleth, come and dine. God, I thank you for this time that we've had together. And I thank you for that fire that you built on the seashore. In the midst of the confusion and the lack of understanding that the disciples had when they went fishing, there you were providing their needs. If they hadn't turned their nets to the other side of the boat, you still had fish and bread, and so we give you thanks for how you provide for us. But their nets were full. And so we thank you for the miraculous ways that we see you at work. We thank you for the story of Peter's restoration and the reminder that it is that we too can be restored. And when we're restored, we have a responsibility. So remind all of us that we are called to join you in mission to feed your sheep. Help us to ask the questions, what does that mean for my life? How do I fit into this body of Christ? How is what I bring something that is needed? I pray that you would help this church and the churches represented in this place to continue to discover what it means for us to be united in mission, in our diversity, for we are better when we are together. And Lord, when we are discouraged, I pray that you would help us to picture you bent down, tending a fire, making breakfast for us, providing what we need. And Lord, I pray that when we have enough, that we would picture you bent down, tending a fire, and we would bring what we have to share with others, for the world has so many needs. Would you help us to come to you to feed our hungry souls? 
And as we do, would you restore us, fill us with your spirit, and send us on your mission to be those that declare the good news that your life, your death, and your resurrection make all the difference today and for eternity. And we will give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.